1: Hello and welcome to a special Saturday episode of The Intelligence. I know you're used to getting our fresh perspectives on weekdays, but we like to go the extra mile for you. So we've shook out and freshened up a few for your weekend, too. America's midterm elections end on Tuesday. They'll determine which party controls Congress. If Republicans take the House, as looks almost certain, they'll be able to put the brakes on much of President Joe Biden's agenda— They'll also be able to hold hearings and launch investigations. If they take the Senate, as they may well do, they'll hold power over confirmations, meaning that if a Supreme Court justice dies or retires, they'll be able to hold the seat open, or at least threaten to do so to influence who President Biden appoints. We launched our midterm series in August, looking at the most important issues and defining themes of the election. We've gone to strip malls in South Florida, a county fair in rural Maine, and a library in Northern Ohio. We've talked to doctors in suburban Atlanta, food truck owners in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and Trump groupies in Detroit. This show is a roundup of the best of our coverage, all in one place. We started off this series by asking why Republicans have been making such inroads with Latino voters. In November, America heads to the polls. Halfway through Joe Biden's presidential term, all 435 seats in the House of Representatives and one-third of the Senates are up for grabs. Usually, the party of the president in power does poorly in the midterms, and this year doesn't look like an exception. The outlook for Democrats has inched upward recently, but they're still probably gonna lose the House and possibly the Senate too. Now, there'll be lots of news between now and election day. This week, the Senate passed historic climate legislation and the FBI executed a search warrant on Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's Florida home. These events, along with others in the coming months, could of course impact November's elections. But as well as following the latest news, we wanted to take a step back and look at the broader forces influencing power and politics in America. Between now and election day, we're going to different house districts around the country, each chosen to illuminate a salient theme in American politics. Today, in the first of our midterm series, we're looking at Republican efforts to expand their appeal to non-white voters, especially Hispanics. Long seen as reliable Democrats, Hispanic voters in recent years have been shifting rightward. That brings us to an unassuming strip mall in Doral, Florida, adjacent to Miami, and part of the newly drawn 26th district.
2: We have different layers to the government. the municipal
1: Sitting alongside a smoke shop and a Chinese takeout, the Republicans Hispanic Community center stands out with flags of Latin American countries festooned across the ceiling and plastered on the walls.
2: They have council members, del local, alcaldes, they have mayors.
1: Here, the GOP is holding classes for immigrants, mostly from South America and the Caribbean, to help prepare them for their citizenship tests.
2: In Florida, we have uh, county court judges, circuit court judges, and then we have the district courts. Of the
1: class was taught by Abel Carvajal, a recent college graduate from nearby Hialeah with an infectious passion for American history. The room was pretty crowded for a Thursday night. Students spread out across multiple tables. A lot of them drank little cups of incredibly strong Cuban coffee. They were curious, engaged, they were talkative, and they were enthusiastic about the prospect of becoming citizens.
3: Uh, that's a great class. Yeah, it was amazing. The professor is super professional. He knows By about, the
1: end of the month, it'll be five years since know. Ovidio arrived from Cuba. He's 23, so he just missed out on public school in
3: America. I'm not only coming here, it's free and it's a citizen club, which is a great benefit to be an American citizen. Also, you know, to know how this country works.
1: And although the class was held at a Republican community center, it was largely factual and apolitical. There was no hard sell. There was no discussion at all of the upcoming election. These classes help their students, of course, but they also help Republicans expand their reach. They're being held in battleground states, including Texas, Georgia, and Nevada. In promotional materials, Republicans say they're intended to help future voters. And of course, Republicans hope they'll vote a certain way. And Ovidio, for one, is sold.  —
3: Right now, you know, as I was able to see what's going on in the country, that makes me more Republican than Democrat. They, like, give you the maximum of freedom, you know, possible that you can have. You're free to do everything. —
1: And it's not just civics classes in a strip mall in South Florida. Nationally, the GOP is working hard to increase its voter pool, especially with Hispanics. Now, it might be tempting to dismiss this as a fool's errand. Hispanics have traditionally been a Democratic constituency, And many thought the anti-immigration turn taken by Republicans during the Trump era would only further that trend. But from 2016 to 2020, Donald Trump's share of the Hispanic vote increased from 29% to 37%. And that's according to a Democratic-aligned political data firm. That shift was particularly strong in Florida, and especially here in Miami-Dade County. That trend looks set to continue. In June, Myra Flores became the first Mexican-born congresswoman in history.
0: I was born in Burgos, Tamaulipas, Mexico. Now I am living my American dream.
1: She represents a district along the Texan border with Mexico that's 85% Hispanic.
0: As the wife of a border patrol agent, I pray for his safety now more than ever.
1: And she's a pro-life, anti-vaccine mandate Republican.
0: We must secure our borders and keep our families safe.
4: President Reagan said once, uh, Hispanics are Republicans. Uh, It's just that they don't know. Now they're knowing. Hispanics identify much more with our values and principles as Republicans than with those of uh, the Democrats.
1: Jaime Flores is the Hispanic Communications Director for the RNC and is unrelated to the new representative from Texas. He attributes much of his party's success to cultural issues. I'm
4: talking about family. I'm talking about faith. We believe in life. We believe in a in, in market economy. We believe in uh, the American way of life. And we're very, very concerned that some of those socialist policies and uh, regimes that we came came to this country fleeing from are, are becoming part of the institution of the Democratic Party. And we have seen those things failing in our countries in Latin America. We have seen that movie. We don't want to see it again.
1: For all the Republicans' recent successes... It should be said that Jaime's job is to sell the party and that most Hispanics do still vote Democratic. And, of course, Florida is a bit of an outlier when it comes to Hispanic politics.
4: Across the country, Donald Trump improved his margins among Hispanics by an estimated eight percentage points between 2016 and 2020. But when you look at Miami and the surrounding areas, Trump improved his margins by closer to 20 points. And that was part of the reason that Florida, which is usually quite competitive in presidential elections, just wasn't in 2020.
1: Idris Kaloun is the economist Washington bureau chief.
4: The reason for that is that a lot of Hispanics in Florida come from places like Cuba and Venezuela and Colombia where their experiences with left-wing socialism and authoritarianism have been particularly scarring. And so when
1: Republicans say that Democrats are socialists, those attacks seem to work really well. And in border districts, like the one Maya Flores represents, attacks on Democrats' border policy also work well. Because many Hispanic voters care about immigration policy, but not as much as or in the same way as Democrats think they should. Most supported Donald Trump's border closure during covid, for instance, and most care far more about the same things other Americans care about jobs in the economy. Hispanics aren't single issue voters around the border.
4: And you have to remember also that um, when we talk about Hispanics who are voting, there are oftentimes people who have been here for two or three generations and who often identify as white American, and so the same sort of
1: politics that, that apply to them have started to apply to Hispanics. Cultural concerns also play a part. The Democratic Party being perceived as overly progressive and out of touch can really be disenchanting to voters.
4: One microcosm of this disconnect between Hispanic voters and the progressives who are largely in charge of the democratic narrative is over the word Latinx, which is a more gender inclusive term for Latino. But if you actually poll Hispanic voters, only 2% of them say that they use the term, and 40% of them say that uh, it offends them.
1: And it's not just a phenomenon among Hispanics. Progressives have also had high-profile down-ballot losses with other groups. They lost a referendum on defunding the police in Minneapolis, in large part due to rejection from African Americans. And in San Francisco... Asian American voters led a successful recall effort for several progressive school board members.
4: And basically what this demonstrates is that American politics is becoming slightly less polarized along racial lines and much more polarized along educational lines. Those who have college degrees, which tend to skew white in this country, are are moving towards the Democratic Party and those without, which includes a lot of people of color,
1: seem to be moving towards the Republican side.
2: Thomas Jefferson uh, was the third president of the republic.
1: Back in Doral, how this district will vote isn't much in doubt. It's almost 75% Hispanic, but largely Cuban and Venezuelan, which are solidly Republican constituencies. Republicans won't have that sort of advantage everywhere. But they're working hard to peel away Hispanic votes from Democrats nationally, and they're succeeding. They don't have to flip the Hispanic vote overall to win big. They just have to erode Democrats' margins. And that starts with showing up, and giving Hispanic Americans a reason to vote Republican. For the teacher, Abel Carvajal, a Miami Dade native, it's a natural match.
5: I think that the Republican Party and the conservative movement has more respect for the fact that this is a country made up of three hundred and what forty million people now. It's a continental nation. That's something I brought up a lot during the course. We were from Florida to the North Pole, and, and I think the Republican Party respects that a lot more than the Democrats do.
1: But it's not just Latinos who have been changing their political stripes. In our next piece, we examine why Democrats have struggled so mightily with rural voters. This year's Piscataquis Valley Fair in Maine took place in one of the most rural parts of America. There was plenty on offer for me and my producer Stevie Hertz to find. Prize cows award-winning pickles, and a Sunday with three types of maple syrup. But Democratic voters were harder to come across.
3: I'm a Democrat, but vote in Republic.
1: In America, not that long ago, the two parties fought hard and almost evenly for rural votes. These days, most rural areas are solidly Republican.
3: I don't like the Democrats anymore. They've gone so far to the left, they're not for the working class anymore. What do you think, when you think of a Democrat,
6: what does that mean to you? Uh, to me, that means higher taxes, okay. fewer jobs.
1: Yeah. When you think of Democrats, what do you think of? I think it's all just a hoax. Control as much as they can control, and everybody just turns a blind eye to everything. On this, the latest in our midterm series, looking at the broader forces influencing power and in politics ahead of November's elections— We're finding out how Democrats are trying to win back white, rural, and working class voters. Between now and election day, we're going to different house districts around the country, each chosen to illuminate a salient theme in American politics. This week, we're in Maine's second district. Maine has just two congressional districts. The first is small and liberal. The second is rural and huge, bigger than Ireland. It's significantly older, whiter, and poorer than the rest of America. So perhaps it's not surprising that Donald Trump won it twice. But so did Barack Obama. Its rightward shift isn't unique. It's part of a national pattern of rural America moving away from Democrats. Here, this local summer fair is still an agricultural event, complete with livestock. Lots and lots of livestock.
7: If you signed up for the pig scramble, come to the pulling ring. If you signed up for the pig scramble, come to the pulling
1: ring. At the pig up. scramble, pigs are released.
7: Okay. On your back. Get set. Go.
1: And kids, some as young as six, compete to catch them.
7: Bail right onto. Them. Don't be scared. <laughs> Grab it right onto his leg. Grab it right onto his legs. Bail right in there.
1: And if you catch one, you keep it.
7: If you catch a pig, you want to get it out of the bag as soon as possible.
1: To raise or sell, there are enough pig farms in the area to give them good homes. The county's Republican Party has a stall at the fair, with buttons, hats, and local candidates. I'm Jim
7: White. I'm running for House District 30 in Piscataquis County, Maine. Some of Somerset. Biggest things, I'm a Second Amendment advocate. I've owned a gun shop for 30 years. Mm -hmm. i pro-life individual. I'm a Christian. So many of my core beliefs align with the Republican Party.
1: Up here, people hunt. Not just for a hobby, but for food. Gun stores and guns themselves are commonplace. Tell me about the raffle.
7: The AR-15 raffle? Well, last year we did our first firearms raffle. We Mm -hmm. raffled off two firearms. Mm -hmm. So uh, we did it again, and um, it seems very successful. Several other committees around the state have been doing firearms.
1: But a Democrat has represented this district in Congress since 2018. Jared Golden is young, not quite 40 years old. He grew up here before joining the Marines and serving in Afghanistan and Iraq.
2: I thank the gentlewoman from Florida for yielding. The purpose of my amendment is to call attention to the shortage of VA mental health and substance use disorder facilities.
1: Golden is plain spoken and tattooed with kind of a reserved demeanor. He isn't a typical glad-handing politician. His detractors and supporters alike say his most striking quality is attentiveness. He listens to people.
2: For example, veterans in my home state of Maine must travel hundreds of miles out of state to access long-term treatment facilities. That's just unacceptable.
0: We're just ramping up right now, obviously. Some are doing doors. Mm -hmm. Some are are, are doing events.
1: uh, Joanne Mason is the chair of the Kennebec County Democrats, helping local candidates, like Golden, with their election campaigns. How do you think he has managed to do so well in a district that voted for Donald Trump? What is his secret?
0: I don't think it's a secret. I think it's uh, it's right out there. He, there's many things. Um, one, he thinks very independently. Mm-hmm. He pays attention to what the community needs. He's a Marine, which is huge. People recognize that this is a man who cares about his community— He's a man who, you know, who's handled guns and owns guns. And that's not a a hugely Democratic thing to put out there.
1: Golden's won twice, both times by narrow margins. This year, he's running against Bruce Poliquin, who he beat in 2018 to win the seat. But while people might like Golden himself, the Democrats' reputation is still toxic to many in rural America.
0: I hear a lot of people complain about Democrats are so liberal and they want everything that, you know, they want this or what. It's not the case. In my opinion, Democrats are a very vast group.
1: So Golden has worked to separate himself from that national brand, which means distancing himself from the president.
2: I'm Jared Golden, and that's why in Congress, I'm an independent voice for you, I'm taking on my own party to stand up for Maine families. I was the only Democrat to vote against trillions of dollars of President Biden's agenda because I knew it would make
1: inflation. Golden was the only House Democrat to vote against Joe Biden's massive Build Back Better Act. And he recently came out against the administration's plans to forgive student debt. Jared Golden isn't the last
6: of a vanishing breed, but he's a remnant of a vanishing breed of of rural Democrats who represent a kind of old school, liberal, working class politics that increasingly reads in in the contemporary Democratic Party as centrist or center-right. James Bennett is the Economist Lexington columnist. If you ask him, why are you a Democrat, his answer is because he believes government can play a very important role in helping people. His concern, I think, about the contemporary Democratic Party is that it's got kind of a grandiose view of that role, and he says wants to help everybody, including people, who don't really need it. And he's
1: con- very concerned about the deficit and excessive government spending. Rural Democrats weren't always so rare. As recently as 2009, there were Democratic senators from North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Iowa, Nebraska, and Alaska. But
6: that has changed dramatically. There's been a precipitous drop for the Democrats and a rise for the Republicans. Most recently, it was a 17-point gap among rural voters. And Donald Trump was particularly successful, but I think he was just exacerbating a trend that was already underway of a growing affinity with the Republicans among rural voters and a growing sense of alienation from the Democrats who are increasingly seen, and this is one of Jared Golden's critiques of the party, seen as a,
1: a party of a, a bi-coastal, college-educated elite. But Golden shows that rural America isn't a lost cause for the Democrats. They just need the right candidates and attitudes. His fear, I think, is that the Democrats have, have
6: seemed insulated. Comments like Hillary Clinton's comment about uh, the basket of deplorables.
0: You know, to just be grossly generalistic, you could put half of Trump's supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables
6: or even going back to Barack Obama saying that rural voters tend to cling to their guns and religion. Those those sorts of remarks continue to reverberate out there in the country and leave a lot of voters, I think, feeling that they're
1: looked down upon. That's let Republicans make inroads on cultural grounds, often using that sense of grievance. But as those cultural wars are fought— Many rural Americans continue to struggle.
8: I would say there's a dichotomy of wealth here in Hancock County. Um, we have lots of summer people. We have lots.
1: Of Sitting on Maine's rugged and beautiful coast, Ellsworth is a quintessential New England village, with multicolored clapboard houses, low brick shops, and a gleaming white church on a green. But Andy Matthews, who runs the Loaves and Fishes Food Pantry there, sees a different side of the town.
8: And so we have lots of higher-level incomes, but we have just as many homeless. We have a lot of people who are really struggling. We have working poor. We have a lot of working poor here. So they are working. They're doing the best they can, but it's not enough to make ends meet.
1: Inflation is hitting hard here. The gap between the median household income in Maine's 2nd District and the median household income in America is widening.
8: As of July 15th, we had served 2,868 family visits, feeding over 7,000 individuals. That was our total for all of 2021, and we reached that by July 15.
1: Rural Maine's a tough place to be poor. There's no public transport, a lot of jobs are seasonal, and the cost of living is surprisingly high. I'm just curious, how are you thinking about elections this November? What are you thinking about?
0: I'm looking for somebody that's not just about taxes or raising taxes. I'm looking for somebody that's got some honesty. Okay. And that's really hard with politics to find honest people. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what I will be looking for when I go to vote.
1: Talking to voters at the food pantry, only one person mentioned a specific candidate or party. Most are searching for something more fundamental.
0: Listen to the people. Because they don't listen. And, you know, go out and meet the people and go to places where people need help and listen to them. I think that's a huge thing, don't you?
1: Despite the polarization in American politics today, not everyone has made up their minds about who they want to vote for. In our next segment, we looked at why some people are still on the fence Cobb County sits at the heart of Atlanta's sprawling northern suburbs. It's one of the richest and most populous areas
9: in the state. Politically, I would say I am uh, fiscally conservative, but more socially liberal. I usually vote Republican, but there are certain issues that will make me swing the other way. Stephen
1: Lenhardt is a doctor, and his office, in a strip mall in northern Cobb County, is festooned with pictures of national parks he's visited.
9: You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to just vote Republican down the line. I'm going to look at the candidates. So I, I do swing. And it's voters like Lenhard, who are open to being persuaded
1: and splitting their ticket, that can swing elections. In this, the latest episode in our midterm series looking at power and politics ahead of November's elections, we're asking who swing voters are, how the parties are trying to reach them and whether they'll determine who controls Congress. Between now and election day, we're going to different areas around the country, each chosen to illuminate a salient theme in American politics. This week, we're headed to the burbs. The Economist midterm model suggests that control of the House of Representatives is likely to come down to about a dozen seats. So the choices of persuadable voters in swing districts could prove crucial. Once
9: solidly Republican, Atlanta's northern suburbs are now contested territory. So in 2016, I I voted for Trump. Trump was a businessman. He is a businessman. And I felt like that the country was not being run well, like a business. It needs to be run like a business, being frugal, trying to do the right things. In 2016, Georgia went for
1: Donald Trump. Cobb County voted for Hillary Clinton by about two points. Four years later, that margin grew. Joe Biden won the county by
9: 14 points. And that swing included Lenhard. He didn't clear the swamp like he said he was going to do. So in 2020, I, I just couldn't vote for him. So I voted for Biden. Understanding what motivates voters like Lenhard and how they might
1: cast their ballots this year is the sort of question that keeps political wonks up at night. Lenhard says he looks at the candidates themselves, their personalities and qualifications and positions. Some of the issues he cares about, like climate and taxes, are constant. But
9: another one is front of mind this year. One of the big issues this year is the abortion issue. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned, I'm looking at that issue a little bit more closely. But uh, in general, I'm looking for Republicans that are going to be more fiscally conservative and try to lower the taxes, things like that.
1: Fondness for conservative candidates isn't unusual in this area. Newt Gingrich a former House speaker whose hard-edged, uncompromising style helped make the Republican Party what it is today, represented parts of the county for 20 years.
0: Where I remember first coming here, you're afraid to put those Democratic signs out and you go to the polls and they would hand you a Republican ballot because it was assumed that you lived here, you're, you know, in that area, you're Republican.
1: Lisa Cupid is the Cobb County chairwoman. She's the county's highest elected official. And she's a Democrat, which would have been unthinkable just a decade ago. There have been a lot of changes to the county. Since the turn of the millennium, it's gone from being 70 percent white to 50. Both the African-American and Hispanic populations have almost doubled since then.
0: When I first came to Cobb County, I lived in East Cobb, and I remember not seeing many others that look like me. Now I drive through East Cobb. I see diversity everywhere.
1: But greater diversity doesn't necessarily mean the county has gone blue. Cupid said much of the swing against Trump was just that, a swing against Trump.
0: I've seen it written many times that Cobb County is now blue. I I think it remains to be seen how permanent these changes are. I think a lot of that push was because our former president was on the ballot, and he's not on the ballot now.
1: Plenty of Republican candidates aren't tying themselves too closely to the former president. I'm Mark Gonsalves, and I'm the Republican nominee for Georgia's 7th Congressional District. Georgia's 7th District is just over the border from Cobb in Gwinnett County. Another fast-growing, demographically and politically changing area. And for Gonsalves, running in a politically heterodox district, there are things he'd rather not talk about, like who won the last presidential election.
9: Uh, I'm going to let others decide the implications of the 2020 race. For me, I'm laser-focused on my race. This is 2022. Our former president is not on the ballot. Uh, I'm the one that's on the ballot.
1: When we speak... Gonsalves emphasizes freedom as the centerpiece of his campaign. Which of the freedoms, when you talk about it, seems to resonate the most in this particular
9: district? Yeah, that's a great question. I would tell you that the freedom of speech is the one that is the biggest one, right? And I do think that government overreach is right there, closely followed behind it.
1: But other freedoms less so. When it comes to abortion, Gonsalves says he's proud to be pro-life. And only believes in an exception to protect the life of the mother. Swing voters come in different flavors depending on the election Reagan Democrats, soccer moms, office park dads. Lenhardt, the doctor, seems an archetype of the latter category suburban, well off, socially liberal, and fiscally conservative. But nationally, another demographic now predominates among swing voters.
5: So the modal swing voter in our polling is a male Hispanic voter under the age of 30 who does not have a college degree and lives in a city.
1: Elliot Morris is a data journalist at The Economist. He helps conduct our House poll, asking questions every week of 1,500 people. So I took
5: a look at the last four months of polling. Swing voters are much less white than partisans. Uh, 17% of the group, according to our poll, is Hispanic. And only 9% of partisans are Hispanic. These non-whites are also disproportionately non-college-educated compared to partisans. So 31% of them are non-white, non-college-educated voters, which is nearly double the size of that same group among partisans.
1: Swing voters are different from other voters in some ways. Perhaps predictably, they're markedly less enthusiastic to vote this year. But in other ways, swing voters look a lot like everyone else. They don't hold radically
5: different opinions than the partisans do. In fact, the differences on our question asking respondents what their most important issue is are indistinguishable statistically among these groups on every question. So basically equal shares of consistent partisans and swing voters say they care about, say, the economy or abortion or immigration.
1: But compared to partisans who vote for the same party every election no matter what, swing voters' numbers are decreasing. We count
5: swing voters as respondents to polls who tell us they voted for different parties over the last two presidential elections. That percentage now is less than 4%. And in 1990, that was closer to 15%. And in the 70s and earlier, it was maybe 20%. Uh, So that's a huge decline.
1: In the Georgia suburbs, Swing voters are keenly fought over. This year, the governor's race is a rematch between Stacey Abrams, a Democrat, and the incumbent, Brian Kemp, a Republican. Abrams gained a national profile through her campaigns to improve voter outreach. Kemp threw his opposition to Donald Trump's attempt to overturn the election. That's one of the things that draws Lenhard, the doctor
9: in Cobb County, to Kemp. I think that he stood up for what's right, and he said... The votes just aren't here in Georgia. You you lost. I voted for Kemp last time, and I plan to vote for Kemp again. The big problem with Kemp is his abortion stance. He really wants to ban abortions, which I am not in favor of. So that's the one issue. But on so many other issues, I stand in his corner with gun control, with the taxes, things like that. And Stacey Abrams, I just think that she's too liberal I worry about her wanting to defund the police, which I'm not in favor of. But while
1: Lenhardt is backing the Republican for governor, he's leaning a different way in Georgia's Senate race. That Senate race is one of the most closely watched in the country. The incumbent, Raphael Warnock, a Democrat, has had just 18 months in Washington. He won the seat in a special election in January, 2021.
7: We were told that we couldn't win this election, but tonight, we prove that with hope, hard work, and the people by our side, anything is possible. And I promise you that,
1: that election was close. He won by just two points. This year he's running against Herschel Walker, a Republican who is beloved in Georgia.
3: Named Herschel Walker, was just trying to keep his head on straight under the bright lights of stardom.
9: He was a star football player at the University of Georgia and then professionally. So I went to the University of Georgia, so I'm, I'm a Herschel fan. Herschel, unfortunately, I just don't think that he has any credentials to be a politician. He has no track record, really. And Warnock, I think that we need to give him some more time. And it's not just Lenhardt
1: who's expected to split the ticket. The Economist midterm model gives Warnock a two-thirds chance of winning, while Abrams is behind in the polls to Kemp. Ticket splitters and swing voters may be an increasingly rare breed, but they're not extinct yet. And with this year's election expected to come down to the wire, they could prove the deciding factor. Two years ago, Donald Trump lost the presidential election. And Republicans failed to win control of either chamber of Congress. But the Republican Party remains deeply committed to its ex-president. We examined how much influence he'll have on the midterm elections.
10: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
5: Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt.
10: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
11: We, I say we, all of us together, we are leading everyone in the polls by a lot, more than ever before.
1: Over the past few years, I've been to maybe a dozen Donald Trump rallies. One I attended in Michigan earlier this month followed the script.
11: So many of you have asked me, where can you purchase our new book,
2: Our Journey Together?
1: The music, the advertisements the fans.
2: Trump is it. He's the guy. He's the spark. He started everything and he's getting everybody ignited, getting excited to get our country back.
1: And of course, a steady stream of candidates pledging their fealty to the guy whose name is on the marquee.
12: Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am freshman Congresswoman Lisa McClain. And I ran because President
0: Trump was making this country great again.
1: These rallies keep Trump's hold on the Republican Party, tying candidates to him, juicing up fans, and helping to raise money. In this, the latest episode in our midterm series looking at power and politics ahead of November's elections, we're asking how much control Donald Trump has over the GOP and whether he helps or hurts Republican chances of victory. Between now and Election Day, we're going to different House districts around the country each chosen to illuminate a salient theme in American politics. This week, we're in Michigan's 3rd District. Trump's endorsement vaunted a little-known candidate over a Republican incumbent in the primary. But will it help in a general election in a district that Joe Biden won by nine points? Michigan's 3rd District is in the state's southwest. It covers the cities of Grand Rapids and Muskegon and the rural areas in between. A couple of weeks ago, the Republican candidate for this district, John Gibbs, held a rally here with his former boss, Ben Carson, who was one of Trump's cabinet secretaries. It was a much more sedate affair than the former president's. Um, and I think um, I'm optimistic, and I'm glad to say we look really good for November. Um, I think that we're
7: not going to let we're not going to let our district be represented by a Democrat for the first time in what 40 something years. I don't even know what that exact number is.
1: But, but it's been a lively campaign. The incumbent, Peter Meyer, won the district in 2020 by six points. But after the January 6th riots, he was one of the few Republican House members who voted to impeach Trump. He lost the primary to Gibbs by four points.
7: Um, I always say that November is not really going to be Democrat versus Republican. It's going to be more crazy versus normal. That's what we're really looking at. This is about, uh, do you want to be forced to buy an electric car? Uh, do you want to pay $7 a gallon for gas? Is there a male and female, or is there 57 genders? I mean, this is just, we've gone into total outer space of craziness right now. And
1: this is- Trump has endorsed just over 200 candidates this cycle. In open races, they won their primaries 90% of the time. Not all of that can be attributed to his endorsement. The former president often picks late when there's a clear front runner, but it's still a pretty impressive record, and can help distinguish candidates in a crowded field. And for some of Gibbs' supporters of the rally, the endorsement is a selling point.
3: Well, the endorsement is good, in my mind. Gibbs is a guy that has a strong Christian faith. He's worked in D.C. He's got a great agenda.
1: But for others, even strong partisans who had come to a campaign event, the endorsement really didn't seem to matter that much. Let me ask, you're wearing a John Gibbs for Congress t-shirt. How important was President Trump's endorsement of him in getting your support for him?
0: Um, you know, I'm not sure that it was that important to me. I think that for me, it was it what he, what John stands for, and
1: um, speaking before the rally, Gibbs, you know, and, and the House the candidate, he said he thinks Trump will remain both kingmaker and king.
7: Uh, he's going to be in that position as long as he wants it. I believe that kind of that leadership position and pace-setting position of our of the party.
1: Since winning their primaries, some Trump-endorsed candidates have tried to distance themselves from the former president to appeal to more moderate voters in the general election. Two days after winning his primary, Don bolduck a Republican running for Senate in New Hampshire, went on Fox News and reversed his stated belief that the 2020 election was stolen.
9: Um, and I've done a lot of research on this, and I have come to the conclusion, and I want to be definitive on this, the election was not stolen. Was there fraud? Yes. Unfortunately,
1: but in Michigan, president Gibbs is sticking to his guns. And tell me about your views of the 2020 election. You feel the election that Donald Trump actually won, why is that? When you look
7: at re-election, a president running for re-election, if you get more votes than you got the first time, you always win. And it was, he got a huge increase in votes. I just, I, it's very difficult to fathom.
1: An endorsement might help get the Republican base out, but that alone probably won't be enough to win a general election, because although about 80 percent of Republicans nationally approve of Trump, only around 40 percent of registered voters do. When I was in Michigan, I spoke to the Democrat who's running against John Gibbs, uh,
4: Hillary Shulton. Idris Calhoun is the Economist Washington bureau chief. And although our conversation was about abortion, we talked quite a bit about the general direction of the country and specifically what has gone on with the Republican Party.
8: Usually what I hear about from a lot of people is that they are um, they feel deeply ill at ease with the direction of the country. Um, they feel that we are headed in too much of an extreme direction and life is hard for them.
4: Unlike Gibbs, who is seen as the Trumpist alternative to Peter Meyer, who was the Republican incumbent who voted to impeach Donald Trump, Shulton is not positioning herself as a left wing candidate, but rather as a moderate.
8: You know, I think people understand uh, in, in this district, you know, they see me as a very common sense, practical, solution oriented mom of two kids.
1: It might be a successful message. The Economist midterm model currently gives John Gibbs just a 20% chance of victory. And that narrative isn't unusual across the country. Once we get into the
4: general election, as we are now, the Trump-endorsed candidates are a bit extreme and I think are underperforming. And I think you'd expect to underperform generic Republican. I think you see that most pronouncedly in the Senate, where we have more frequent opinion polls. Nationally, many Trump-endorsed Republican candidates are struggling. So in the Senate, you know, we see people like Herschel Walker in Georgia and Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania have been running fairly substandard campaigns and are several points behind what you'd expect a Republican to be in those states. And I think that is a probably as good a measure as any of how much the Trump endorsement can hinder general election prospects in places where Democrats and Republicans are fairly evenly split.
1: That's an important distinction. Trump's endorsement may help in Republican primaries, but it's not clear that it does the same in a contested general election. A lot of Republicans feel that high gas prices and rampant inflation should put their party in a better position for the midterms.
11: You know, the unfortunate thing is we've got a set of issues right now, defining the election for the most part, save abortion policy, that should be unifying pretty much everyone within our coalition. Jason Rowe is a Republican strategist in Michigan. He was the
1: executive director of the party, but left after criticizing Trump. The party's prospects still frustrate him.
11: I mean, the inflation, the gas prices, the things that are going on there is, affects everyone in our coalition. And and we have real advantages politically. But we're spending time talking about 2020 elections and forensic audits and cheating and relitigating, you know, if Trump is the leader of our party or not. And we're taking away the opportunity that we have in front of us.
1: More Republicans may come to agree if the losses of Trump as candidates, like Walker and Oz, cost the GOP control of either chamber of Congress.
11: But that doesn't mean Trump will just fade away. You've got to pay attention to this guy's ego. The idea that he would be in control of one of the two major political parties in the most powerful nation in the world, and that he would go quietly into the good night is insane. (laughs) Of course he's not giving up control. What would be the motivation if you're Donald Trump? You have this very powerful vehicle at your disposal, and you can use it to fight your enemies, fight law enforcement, fight prosecutors, fight political battles. Why would you give up control of that? And even if he goes,
1: he's changed the party. His heirs apparent, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, are basically running to be post-Trump Trumpists. Idris again.
4: I do not think that the Republican Party is going to snap back to 2012 Mitt Romneyism. I think that all the people who are contenders to be in charge of the party are people like Ron DeSantis. His entire appeal is that he is... Still incredibly pugilistic, still incredibly hostile to the media. He has all the right enemies, but he, he manages to conduct himself in a way that is less besotted with scandal
1: as Donald Trump. But for those at the rally, decked out in Trump t-shirts, that seems a distant possibility.
8: Well, it says Trump 2024. But I would like to, I would like to cross that out and put now. Yeah. I would. I would. He will be back.
1: The last time America held a midterm election, the inflation rate was 1.2%. That has since changed dramatically. But how much will inflation and other economic concerns affect the upcoming election? Our correspondents went to find out.
7: These are the, the little Havana's. They're like Cuban sandwiches. So those are the ones that come with pulled pork, Swiss cheese... And diced ham.
1: Raymond Rodriguez runs a food truck selling empanadas with his wife Natalie. Right, so
12: a beef, a shrimp, three El Maduros, and one sugar baby. It's gonna actually be 26 even.
1: We're at a farmer's market in a beautiful refurbished old red brick mill in downtown Pawtucket, Rhode Island. You can buy craft beef jerky, shea butter soaps an array of knobby root vegetables and other farmer's markety kind of things. Last Wednesday, the only hot food came from Spanglish, Raymond and Natalie's truck. And around dinner time, they're doing a brisk business. But higher costs at the pump and at the markets has made it harder for them to turn a profit.
7: It gets to the point where you can't even look at the prices no more, because if you don't get it, you ain't running, you know? So it's like you just have to buy And when you get to the registers, like... This is not what I paid yesterday, but today is
1: what you're going to pay. It's been a tough process, I feel. High and volatile prices are also being felt by their customers. I mean, that's a special
12: occasion, So yeah, I guess it would be the kind of a, a special thing, not necessarily something we'd come weekly for. We do have to be careful with spending. I, I am going to go cook dinner now when I get home, so this is a dessert for us.
1: And things haven't just been tough in Rhode Island. America is struggling with inflation levels not seen since Ronald Reagan's first term. Annualized inflation hit 8.3% last month. Voters across the country cite the economy as the most important issue in the upcoming elections. In this, the latest episode in our midterm series looking at power and politics ahead of November's elections, we're talking about inflation. Democrats don't want to talk about it, but Republicans want to be sure voters blame the party in charge. For the past couple of months, we've been going to different House districts around the country, each chosen to illuminate a salient theme in American politics. This week, we're in Rhode Island's second district, which covers most of the state. The last time a Republican won this seat was in 1988, but with the incumbent retiring after 11 terms, the race to succeed him is surprisingly tight, and economic concerns are at its center. Rising prices have hit Raymond and Natalie's business, Spanglish, especially hard. Food trucks sit at the intersection of two of the biggest drivers of inflation, rising food and fuel costs. And one price rise has been especially painful for the couple, cooking oil.
12: Oil was the, obviously the biggest thing for us. We fry our empanadas. That's like, you know, that's our we bread and butter. Our regular price when we first started was $19. The next week it was 24 And then the following week it was $30. And the fo- it literally was like a week. Every time we went to purchase it, it was like another $10 more, $10 more, until it got to 60 And we were like...
1: <gasps> Inflation has a range of causes. For cooking oil and a lot of food, it was largely down to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The two countries supplied about 75% of the world's sunflower oil. And with exports restricted by the war, the prices of cooking oil spiked around the world. And that spike has forced Raymond and Natalie to make some difficult decisions.
7: We've definitely had to bring up the prices about two times in the last 12 months. Unfortunately, we didn't want to do it the first time we did it. Inflammation was going up at the supply stores. It was going up with gas prices. So it forced us to put it up.
12: And there's definitely been kickback from the customers. We make empanadas. People are used to it's, it's, it's street food and it's, and it's quick and it's, it's usually cheap. You know, it's a dollar, two dollars the most for most people. And we've, we're at the point where ours are five dollars, you know, and most people go right away. Five dollars for one? You know, and I mean, really, if you broke it down, well, yeah, actually, that's, that's kind of lowballing. what <laughs> I really should be charging.
1: According to figures collected by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, half of small businesses say inflation is the biggest challenge facing them right now, and seven in ten say they've had to raise prices. And for Natalie and Raymond, even with the price rises, they're taking home less than they were before. So there's economic angst, and Republicans are hoping that angst. Will be the defining issue of the election. Yeah,
12: but thanks to all the jokers in Washington, we're paying twice as much for everything. It's
1: awful. Awful. I'm Alan Fung, and I approve this message because we. In the second district, the race is between Republican Alan Fung, a former mayor of Cranston, the state's second largest city, and Democrat Seth Magaziner, Rhode Island's treasurer. This race should be an easy win for Magaziner. Biden won the district by 14 points in 2020. But Fung is ahead in the polls, and the result is a toss-up in the economist midterm model.
8: Alan Fung has a careful, thoughtful approach. You know, he's not extreme one way or the other. He's a very moderate candidate.
1: Sue Sienke heads the Rhode Island GOP. She says Fung's moderate appeal has helped him and hopes economic concerns will do the same.
8: So, you know, we have a great ground game here. We are actually knocking on doors and talking to actually residents in Congressional District 2 and throughout the state. We approach the doors and we say, you know, what are the issues that concern you? Eighty-seven percent of the families that we approach say inflation is the number one issue.
1: In polls carried out last week for The Economist by YouGov, an online polling firm One-third of Americans say that inflation and the state of the economy are the most important issues for them personally. But being concerned doesn't necessarily translate into voting for Republicans. That's what Sue Sienke, and thousands of others like her around the country, are trying to change. Sienke blames Democrats in Congress and the White House, especially the COVID relief bills they passed. ...for fueling inflation.
8: They passed these outrageous bills to throw more money into the system, and it created the inflation that we're seeing now. So we've got to be very careful about what the government does to control, you know, some of the issues that they've done.
1: And Sienki isn't wrong. Some of that legislation did contribute to inflation. Economists reckon that of the 8% inflation America now has, about three percentage points is because of fiscal policy so big spending bills from D.C. But that includes the first COVID relief package, signed by Donald Trump.
2: The U.S. economy is a massive fuel tanker, and it takes a lot to kind of turn it around. And somebody sitting in the White House passing this or that legislation or this or that executive order is in the short term going to have a marginal impact.
1: Simon Rabinovich is our U.S. economics editor, based in Washington.
2: That said, when you look at some of the legislation that has been passed in the last 18 months, so starting with the infrastructure bill and moving through the chips and science, and the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, they will have a big impact on the shape of the economy, you know, potentially for decades to come. So I wouldn't want to undersell the impact of the president.
1: And when focusing on inflation it's also easy to overlook the success of other parts of the economy.
2: The amount of job growth over the last 18 months has been absolutely tremendous. The number of workers in the American economy today is a little bit higher than it was before the pandemic. The unemployment rate is just 3.5%, which is incredibly low. So it's, it's a good time to be looking for work.
1: But then for business owners like the Rodriguez's, it makes hiring and keeping staff much harder. So there are a couple of ways of looking at the economy right now. And increasingly, the lens you pick depends on your party.
2: On the economy, as in all matters, the partisan divide has been getting bigger over the years. And studies have shown there's now greater polarization in perception about the economy than there used to be. So when a Republican is in the White House, Democrat voters are more pessimistic about the economy... And vice versa. And so if you look at polls right now, you know, an overwhelming majority of Republicans, 90 percent plus, think the economy is in a bad state. For Democrats, it's closer to the 50, 60 percent level.
1: In every election, the two parties trade barbs over who would be best for the economy. Republicans currently have the lead. In a Gallup poll released this month, 50 percent of adults trust them more compared with 40% for Democrats. That's the widest gap in 30 years. For those respondents to The Economist poll who said that the economy or inflation was their top concern and also predicted they were definitely or probably going to vote, about two-thirds said they'd vote for a Republican for the House of Representatives. But for people who put any other issue as the most concerning, Democrats led by 18 points— So it's clear why Democrats are keen to change the conversation to literally anything else. But the next month might not make that easy for them.
2: So the rate-setting committee of the the Federal Reserve will be meeting exactly a week before the the midterm election. And so it's all but guaranteed that, you know, on November 2nd, there will be another jumbo rate rise of three-quarters of a percentage point, the fourth consecutive one. So that will obviously be, um, you know, big news and and will have an impact on, on the market.
1: And though the markets expect a rate rise, they'll be looking to what the Fed signals for the future and might react dramatically. But other signals may be more concerning to voters.
2: I think the price in the economy that matters most of all to people is the price of gas. We know that the OPEC production cut is going to hit next month. If oil miraculously stabilizes and even declines a little bit, that obviously will be good news for the Democrats. If it starts flirting with $100 a barrel again, and that would be very, very bad news for the Democrats, very good news for the Republicans. But right now, Raymond and Natalie don't blame either party. I'll
7: be honest, you know, is I've, I've had all different type of emotions. I don't really feel like there's much control on this stuff. Not even who's in office, but I feel like we was in a better position before.
12: I really can't put the blame on anyone specifically, to be honest. I, I'm, I blame the pandemic, I'm not gonna lie, of course. But I mean, this was kind of just uncharted territories. Uh, but is it gonna change the way I vote? I'm not 100% sure, I'm not gonna lie to you.
1: Immigration is a visceral concern along America's southern border and it's shaping American politics well beyond the region too. Our correspondents examined how border worries might influence how people vote. On the campaign trail in 2020, Joe Biden pledged to stop the expansion of Donald Trump's border wall.
11: There will not be another foot of wall constructed on my administration, number one.
1: But in recent months, the White House has quietly reversed course. And today, gaps in the wall are being filled. The policy reversal has come in the face of record numbers of migrants arriving at America's southern border. To stem the flow, Republicans are calling for a tougher approach. For instance, they want to end the practice commonly called catch and release, which lets some migrants remain in the United States while awaiting immigration hearings. And to drive their point home, some... Like Texas Governor Greg Abbott, have sent busloads of migrants to democratic states.
7: Central America. We just crossed the border from Mexico yesterday and we were. We, we got onto a bus from Texas and they said that we were going to Chicago and, we, and someone was expecting us
1: here. A few weeks ago, with the midterms bearing down, President Biden introduced a plan to keep Venezuelans away from the U.S. border. But while that has led to a drop in crossings, Many Democrats, particularly those on the left, remain skeptical of tougher immigration policy. With Election Day looming, the border is becoming an ever greater thorn in the side of the Biden administration.
13: The border became a politically supercharged topic as Donald Trump campaigned in 2016 to build a border wall. It's taken on greater importance recently for two reasons. The first is that there's a larger flow of people. So from last October until the end of August, border officials encountered migrants about 2.2 million times on the southern border, which is about double the number of encounters we saw in the 2019 fiscal year.
1: Alexandra Sewich bass is the economist's senior correspondent for politics, technology, and society.
13: The second reason is because Republicans perceive it as a winning campaign issue. With Democrats in control of the White House and Congress, they're able to use what's happening on the border as a symbol of democratic incompetence.
1: And so that's the border as a broad national political issue. Tell us a bit more how border concerns are playing out in states that actually lie along America's border with Mexico.
13: It's featuring extremely heavily in states like Texas and Arizona. In Arizona, the Republican candidate for governor, Carrie Lake, who's been endorsed by Donald Trump, has promised to make the border her first action when she is sworn into office. Day
11: one about the border, number one priority.
8: So we're going to issue a declaration of invasion and get the ball rolling, protecting our own state.
13: Carrie Lake blames Democrats for being too soft. She and Republicans in other border states like Greg Abbott, who is running for re-election for governor in Texas, talk about how broken the system is. And that's what is allowing criminals and drugs to flow into the country. But it's not just Republicans who are critical of what's happening. It's also Democrats. I spoke with Henry Cuellar, who is the U.S. representative for Texas's 28th congressional district, who told me that the Biden administration has gotten federal border policy really wrong. You have
11: the Biden administration, you know, pretty much has open borders and say that the border is secure, but it's really not secure. I mean, I don't think anybody can say that with a straight face.
13: Uh, at the border he wants countries. the White House to do more to deter migrants publicly.
11: This administration, I've told them they ought to show images of people being returned after their legal uh, relief has all gone. But they won't do that. They told me they, they will not do that.
13: Uh, Congressman Cuellar suggested the approach was hurting the chances of Democrats seeking office in border states.
1: If that's true, why isn't the White House saying more about
13: it? Congressman Cuellar says the administration is too worried about alienating the left wing of the party,
11: yeah, they don't want to talk about it. they 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 specifically told me we don't want to upset the immigration activists. you hit it
13: and it's worth pointing out that Democrats have really shifted to the left on this issue. Biden doesn't want to depress the base ahead of the midterms. And he sees this kind of as a no-win situation. Highlighting the border does not really resonate with Democrats, but it does strongly resonate with Republicans. According to a recent NBC News poll, registered voters perceive Republicans to be much stronger on border security, leading Democrats by 36 points.
1: Do you think that's deserved? How would you characterize the Biden administration's border policy to this point?
13: I would say that the Biden administration strategy is to close their eyes and hope this issue goes away. The Biden administration campaigned against the wall and against policies like Remain in Mexico, which keeps asylum seekers in Mexico in really difficult and dangerous conditions, and also campaigned on ending Title 42, which is a Trump-era public health order which has been used to expel people. But the Biden administration has frustrated everyone because they have not delivered on their campaign promises, partly because they've gotten ensnared in lawsuits by red states. So some progressives are really frustrated. And then I think moderates and Republicans are really frustrated with the Biden administration for not being clear about messaging and really setting out a proactive strategy for dealing with these elevated numbers.
1: So Alexandra, what is driving the large rush of people coming to the border?
13: Because of the way that Biden campaigned promising a more humane immigration system. There's been the widespread perception that it would be easier to get into America now. And so it was the right time to make the trek. But to suggest that the Biden administration is solely responsible for this is completely incorrect. There are major push factors that are driving people to leave their home country and seek asylum in America. We are seeing massive inflation, political unrest, natural disasters and hurricanes, and tremendous poverty that's been aggravated by COVID. And that's why we see more people leaving their home country today than we've seen since World War II.
1: And so what do Republicans propose to do about the border?
13: Republicans are campaigning, saying that this is an extremely easy fix and that they tend to point to three things that they would do if they gain office. One is to complete the wall. The second is to end catch and release. And the third is that they will impeach Secretary Mayorkas, the secretary of Homeland Security who oversees the border. Suggesting that border policy is simple and that Trump had fixed this issue is misleading. There were also elevated numbers of migrants coming while Trump was in office, despite all of his efforts to curtail migration. And things like ending catch and release is not easily done. There are only 25,000 detention beds. So if what Republicans are suggesting is that everyone who comes to the border is going to be detained, processed and sent back rather than released into America. That would require both much more detention beds and also a change of policy because current law is that people are allowed in, if they are asylum seekers, to pursue their claims within America for as long as it takes for that to get resolved. This is going to require action by Congress. This is not going to be a simple fix that will come by electing Republicans.
1: And so Democrats have been putting their heads in the sand and hoping the issue would go away. Republicans have been proposing disingenuously simple solutions. What do you think the fix is? What does Congress need to do?
13: the solution would require a bipartisan bill in Congress everyone on both sides of the aisle agree that America's immigration system is very outdated. It is not designed for the realities of today where you see unaccompanied children and families coming, not just single males coming for work. And they're coming from a much wider array of countries that are very difficult to send people home to. Right now, America's asylum system is its backdoor immigration policy. If someone wants to come to America, they come to the southern border and claim asylum rather than there being more viable lines it can get into in order to come work legally in America. So the whole system needs to be redesigned. The border is an issue that really exposes the political divisions in America, and it would require the political parties to transcend those divisions to pass meaningful reform. Unfortunately, I don't think it's likely. And this issue is only going to continue to stay in the headlines and get worse in the months ahead.
1: All right. Alexandra, thanks so much for your time today.
13: John, thank you for having me.
1: Last summer, Roe versus Wade, a 50-year-old Supreme Court case guaranteeing a woman's right to an abortion, was overturned. Our correspondents explored whether or not that would make a difference to the balance of power in America. In a car park in Akron, Ohio, on a chilly Sunday evening, A few hundred people gathered for a rally of Democratic candidates. Headlining were Amelia Sykes, running for the House.
8: —Please give it up and welcome your next Congresswoman, Amelia Sykes. —This is the most important election of our lifetime.
1: —And Tim Ryan, running for the Senate.
9: —I believe that the issue of freedom is on the ballot. And what we have seen in the last three months come from the Supreme Court is an absolute violation of the freedom of women in the United States of America.
1: When my colleague Stevie Hertz asked attendees what concerns they had going into the election, one issue came up again and again.
10: And what are the issues that are particularly important to you in this election?
1: Uh, Abortion's probably
2: up there.
10: Climate change,
9: women's rights, and saving democracy.
0: Well, number one, women's rights. I come from an era when it was keep women barefoot and pregnant when I first started working in the 60s. And what I see now is a whole section of the country turning against the rights of women.
1: In this, the latest episode in our midterm series examining power and politics ahead of November's elections, we're looking at how much the issue of abortion after the overturning of Roe v.ersus Wade is impacting voters' decisions. For the past couple of months, We've been going to different house districts around the country, each chosen to illuminate a salient theme in American politics. This week, we're in Ohio's 13th district. This newly drawn district stretches from the Cleveland suburbs through the cities of Akron and Canton, and covers the rural areas in between. It narrowly voted for Joe Biden in 2020, and this year, the race for the House is set to be close, and abortion. Could prove the decisive issue. Stevie reported from there.
10: On June 24th, in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, allowing states to ban abortion. Hours later, Ohio's trigger law went into effect. It blocks abortion after cardiac activity can be detected, or at about six weeks, without exception for rape or incest. The state found itself in the national spotlight about a week later, when a 10-year-old girl who had been raped was forced to leave the state to end her pregnancy. The Indianapolis Star reported first of a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio who had traveled over
13: state lines for an abortion.
7: Her doctor says she's six weeks pregnant. He's now trying to work with other medical professionals to transfer the young girl to Indiana to get medical care. Among those horrified by the case, President Biden. Imagine being that little girl.
2: Just, I'm, I'm serious, just imagine being that little girl.
10: In September, courts put a temporary block on the law while it's litigated. So in Ohio, as with a number of states with critical races this year, including Michigan, North Carolina and Arizona, laws surrounding abortion are in flux, with bans looming.
8: This is an issue that is top of mind for a lot of voters, that impacts their physical health, their financial well-being and their ability to live comfortably
10: and securely in our communities. So Amelia Sykes, the Democrat running for Congress, says that it matters a lot to voters. But in a state where Donald Trump won by eight points in 2020, Democratic candidates are framing it in a way to ensure the broadest possible appeal. Tim Ryan, in a close Senate race, ties abortion to a wider argument about freedom. Sykes makes it about security.
8: The ability to decide your future is something that people have had security in, and now they do not. And so just as the economy, just as crime, just as democracy have all become issues about whether we feel secure in our future,
10: we're hearing the same themes over and over again. Tom Lapis is the executive director of the Stark County Republican Party. It covers the lower, more rural part of the district. The county went for Trump by about 20 points in 2020.
3: It's much like being a pastor or priest at a church. Uh, around Christmas time. Everyone wants to come in and uh, decorate the altar and get involved. So it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of excitement. And we're just making the best of it.
10: In the campaign office a few weeks out from the election, a huge headshot of Ronald Reagan watches over the volunteers as they busily make calls. Lapper says the energy around abortion has changed since the summer, when the Supreme Court's decision came down.
3: I think, briefly, the Democrats gained some momentum but it seems short-lived. There didn't seem to be that large of a, a momentum shift. A lot of our people have been very concerned about the economy. They've been concerned about crime. Those are the two issues that we hear the most about. Abortion does not seem to be a forefront issue right now.
10: But for Republicans, Madison Jessiotto-Gilbert, who is running for the House, and J.D. Vance, the Senate candidate, Their anti-abortion positions are part of their campaigns, prominent on ads and leaflets. Because, Lapis says, Dobbs may have galvanized pro-choice Democrats, but it's done the same for the other side too.
3: Columbus had its first March for Life just recently. A lot of the pro-life base is very energized by the new possibilities they have to win at the state level for pro-life rights.
10: Michaela Walther is a 19-year-old freshman at Walsh University, a Catholic school in Canton. This year, she started volunteering for the local Republican Party.
9: So I was raised in a you know a Catholic home, and so obviously abortion is you know a big one, and especially with everything that's going on right now, that's a big one. We we all know that you know this has just granted power back to the states, and it's now important to to make sure that. As states, we, you know, declare it illegal, but also bring it back to the federal level.
10: But in polls, more than half of Democrats say that the issue of abortion is important to them, compared to just a third of Republicans.
14: When I heard the decision that the Supreme Court made in Dobbs v. Jackson, Whole Woman's Health, I wondered what the political ramifications of it would be, given that this is an election year.
10: John Brudeau is The Economist's U.S. editor.
14: And I have to say my first instinct was that it wouldn't have that big of an effect. Abortion politics is so polarised in America and people who really mind about abortion have known for such a long time where the two parties stand that I wasn't sure that this would move that many votes. And actually, I think in retrospect, I was wrong about that.
10: The first electoral test since the decision happened in August in Kansas. There, in a conservative state that Donald Trump won by about 15 points, about three-fifths of voters opposed changing the state constitution to allow an abortion ban.
14: The Kansas referendum was a harbinger, I think. The other thing that's changed my mind on the impact of abortion in the midterms is if you look at our own election model and some of the other statistical models that try and predict what's going to happen, and you can see a real inflection point after the Supreme Court handed down the Dobbs judgment. Democrats' chances of holding the Senate went up quite markedly after that decision.
10: Most Americans want neither a complete ban nor no restrictions at all. But for years, many Republican candidates haven't had to play to that centre ground.
14: So a lot of Republican politicians in particular have been able over the years to adopt pretty extreme positions on abortion. So No abortions, even in the case of rape or incest, for example. And those have been, you know, free positions for them to take in the sense that they never had to take the consequences of those positions because the Supreme Court had decided the law of the land. Once Roe v. Wade was overturned, those became real positions, right? So Republicans in that position suddenly looked really extreme in the way that they hadn't done before.
10: Some Republican candidates have responded by trying to downplay their previous positions on abortion, like the Senate candidate in Arizona, who removed a line on his website describing himself as 100% pro life. But Democrats have tried to reinforce the distinction. President Joe Biden has said that the first bill he'll send to the next Congress would be to codify the protections of Roe, ensuring a national right to abortion.
14: I think the Dobbs decision will make the midterms different than they would be otherwise. I think Democrats would be doing worse then they would had the Supreme Court not handed down that decision. That said, the key Senate races in this midterm elections and the key House races, they're going to be really close, right? And given they're so close, there are a whole load of things that you could point to. Inflation, Joe Biden's low approval ratings, etc. so it's, it's impossible really to pick one issue and say, well, that was the thing that caused
4: the result,
10: On a Monday lunchtime in a public library halfway between Akron and Canton, nine women gathered. Some of them knew each other, most didn't. They were there for a meeting of red, wine, and blue.
8: We are a grassroots organization dedicated to mobilizing suburban women to combat right wing extremism and MAGAism.
10: Missy McGuinness is the organizer leading the meeting.
8: Under that, umbrella of basically preserving our democracy, we also focus on several issues. So reproductive rights is huge, but it's not the only one. It's also LGBTQ plus rights, gun violence prevention, and public education.
10: The aim of the session is to train the women in relational organizing, which basically means talking to other suburban women about the election.
8: It's a simple concept that talking to people you know friends, family, your networks is orders of magnitude more effective than strangers talking to strangers. It's 15 times more effective than knocking on a stranger's door, 22 times more effective than a robo text message.
10: Speaking about what brought them that day, most haven't been very active before. And it's partly the Dobbs decision that's energized them.
11: I myself was someone who had to have an illegal abortion when I was a teenager and so I know what it's like and I know what a horror it can be. So I knew that the minute that happened when the Supreme Court did what it did this time around, that I had to get active again.
0: As I
8: was getting ready to retire and just happened to coincide with the Dodd's decision, I'm like, Well, now I know what I have to spend my energy doing because there is nothing more important to me right now than saving democracy from the crazies that are out there, um, just taking away all of
10: our rights. Many of them haven't been previously involved in political organizing, and abortion is a big motivating factor. But it's just one.
8: I'm really concerned about all of it. Not just Dobbs, but all of it. All of, I mean, the right to vote, the... Mm -hmm. You know, the voting that will be legit. You know, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, everything. Um, The cruelty needs to go. Mm -hmm. Absolutely needs to go. So, bye. They all had to go.
1: (laughs) The overturning of Roe and the looming state-level battles over reproductive rights have clearly galvanized at least some Democrats— But it also seems to have done the same for the other side. After all, they got what they wanted for decades. Roe overturned. And with inflation soaring and Republicans hitting Democrats hard on crime, abortion may end up being just one of many concerns on voters' minds when they head into the ballot box in November. With the midterms just around the corner, Republicans seem poised to win at least one chamber of Congress. Our next segment asks what they'll do with their majority. In America, it's the last dash in the race for the midterms. Debates are in full sway.
8: I hope to earn your vote and bring Michigan back to a family-friendly Michigan.
1: I had a stroke. He's never let me forget that. And I might miss some words during this debate. Ads blanket the airwaves in close races. And political heavyweights are racing across the country trying to rally their bases.
7: Who will fight for your freedoms? When you start a family,
11: how many children you have, who you marry, who you love, do not boo. Vote. Together, we're standing up against some of the most menacing forces, entrenched interests, and vicious opponents our people have ever seen. This election is not a referendum. It's a choice, a choice between two vastly different visions of America.
1: In our midterm series, we've also gone around the country Looking at issues and speaking to voters. Now, a week before the election, we're focusing on the Capitol, Washington, D.C., and what might happen there when a new Congress takes office.
4: At the start of the summer, Democrats were stealing themselves for a world-historic level of blowout in the midterm elections. And then over the summer, things improved. Idris Kaloun is the Economist's Washington Bureau Chief. Gas prices came down, and they also were dealt a bit of a gift from the Supreme Court, which overturned Roe versus Wade, which established a constitutional right for abortion. But now, what we've seen in the last month or so of the campaign is that Democrats may have peaked a little bit early. The polls so far seem to suggest that there's been a tightening in races that Democrats thought that they might have a
1: chance of winning. And inflation has been unrelenting. So what does that mean results-wise? If you were going to place a bet on an outcome next week, what would you bet on? I would bet that
4: Republicans take the House of Representatives. And I think it's 50-50 on whether or not they would take the Senate. But I certainly think that there's a very high probability of divided
1: government in the last two years of President Biden's first term. So let's explore what that means. With Republicans in control, probably of at least one chamber of Congress— Do you expect gridlock, or do you think they'll try to forge a working relationship with the White House? Well, they
4: could hold hands and sing kumbaya, but probably not. What happens if Kevin McCarthy, who's the Republican leader in the House of Representatives, ultimately becomes Speaker, is you have to imagine that all policy that passes will be subject to essentially three possible veto points. There's President Biden, there's the Senate... And then there's the House Freedom Caucus, which is the furthest right, most conservative group within the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives. You know, Kevin McCarthy laid out a policy agenda that he called a commitment to America.
6: We've created a commitment to America. We want an economy that is strong. That means you can fill up your tank.
4: Which is essentially boiled over Reaganomics of tax cuts and deregulation.
6: The Democrats have no plan for the problem they created. Who has a plan to change that course? We do. Pretty standard
4: Republican stuff. Of course, it's not going to be something that Joe Biden is going to sign into law. So I suspect that we won't see terribly much policymaking. What we saw with Obama and his interactions with John Boehner, who was then the speaker, was that that conservative faction was very willing to insert themselves to try to scupper any deals that were made. And so if you imagine what's at the intersection of, of what joe biden wants what kevin mccarthy wants and what someone like marjorie taylor green would want that in mathematics is what you would call a null set even on things that you could point to that democrats and republicans agree on like the need to get tougher on china the need to be more skeptical of big business if you think about what that would look like in terms of actual legislation things start to fall apart. The Republican case against big tech is that they censor conservatives. The Democratic case against big tech is that they're monopolies and spew disinformation. So I expect that you wouldn't see very much uh, substantive coming through. If Republicans do take the Senate, that probably means that a Supreme Court vacancy would go unfilled. Mitch McConnell, who did that under Barack Obama, has made comments suggesting that he would have no compunction in doing the same thing here. It would probably mean that a lot of administrative appointments to the cabinet and subcabinet level would slow down to a trickle
1: as well. You mentioned Barack Obama facing a Republican-controlled Congress, and and I'm sure you remember what we saw then was repeated brinksmanship, government shutdowns over the budget.
14: Earlier this week, the Republican House of Representatives chose to shut down a government they don't like over a health care law that they don't like. Now, I've talked a lot about the real- Do you
1: think that sort of high-stakes negotiation is going to come back? Very much so if Republicans
4: are in charge of at least one chamber. I think that there will be very little of substantive agreement. But what you will see, I think, is Congress revert to a very destructive mode of operation where the only time they leap into action is when there's a cataclysmic deadline approaching. Either the government is about to shut down or the debt ceiling, which is a limit on the amount that the federal government can borrow, is about to be broached. The worry is that because this will be the maximum leverage that Republicans will exert, they will try to enact things like spending cuts, things like entitlement reforms, and Democrats will want a clean renewal, and that will be a difficult process. It might result in America's credit being downgraded again, which would be a problem, especially given
1: the high cost of sovereign borrowing at the moment. And what about oversight and investigative powers? House Republicans have already scheduled a press conference on investigations for the week after the election. How do you think they're going to use those powers in the majority? When a party takes over a
4: chamber like the House of Representatives, they get to appoint the heads of all the committees. And I actually think that that committee process might be more important than whatever legislation actually manages to come out of this session. And in particular, I think the most important committee... Will be the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, which is basically a watchdog for the federal government. The expected chair is a Kentuckian representative named James Comer, who, when I spoke to him, laid out his priorities quite clearly. He already has them in mind. Number one, quite clearly, is Hunter Biden, who is the president's son, who has been in the news lately because of a laptop of his that was. Taken, its contents have been poured over, which probably has a treasure trove of damaging information on him. But there will also be many other investigations going on on the border on all the spending that the Biden administration has done and whether or not any of that has been wasteful. It will basically be a machine producing embarrassing stories for the White House, calling up people for testimony, calling up cabinet secretaries for testimony. And it will really, I think, throw a spanner in the works
1: for the administration. And do you think embarrassment is as far as it goes, or will they actually start impeaching people? And if so, who and why?
4: So you've seen on the far right of the party that members have said that they want to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, who is the secretary of Homeland Security over the border. And some, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, have even said that they want to impeach Joe Biden. I did
0: introduce articles of impeachment on Joe Biden because of how he is failing and not doing his job at the southern border. But it's just worse than that. After-
4: I am kind of doubtful that there will be a formal vote by the House of Representatives to impeach Joe Biden without better cause than they have now. And in any case, in order to secure a conviction in the Senate, you would need a, a supermajority, which Republicans definitely will not have. So if it does happen, it'll be a lot of show and a lot of noise, but it won't materially
1: matter. How united are Republicans in these aims, do you think?
4: I think Republicans are united by their disdain for the Biden administration. That's fairly clear throughout. I think that they are relatively disunited in how far they'd like to go. The impeachment of Joe Biden is is one example. The extent to which compromise is a dirty word also differs among moderate Republicans and the Trumpier faction, which I think is largely in charge of the party, even though Kevin McCarthy has tried to straddle both factions. What we've seen in the past has been that being a Republican Speaker of the House is a really unpleasant job. It drove John Boehner and Paul Ryan to early retirement.
7: It's become clear to me that this prolonged leadership turmoil would do uh, irreparable harm to the institution. Uh, so this morning, I informed my colleagues that I would resign from the speakership. And...
4: and, you know, Kevin McCarthy, who's a very ambitious guy, would like to avoid that same fate, but he already has a lot to deal with. We've seen in an interview that Marjorie Taylor Greene who is a conspiratorial member of the Republican caucus and a bit of a Trumpy rock star, is openly warning Kevin McCarthy that she will need a lot of power in order to stay on side. So we're already seeing the jostling. And that suggests that even if it will be an unpleasant two
1: years for Joe Biden, it will also probably not be the best years for Kevin McCarthy. So what does that say about where the balance of power lies in the Republican caucus these days? Well,
4: we will see next week what that looks like, because if Republicans secure a small majority, that means that the Freedom Caucus, the conservative faction, will be relatively empowered, because even a small defection will mean things can't get done. If, in fact, there is a large majority, that will make life easier for Kevin McCarthy, who will be able to command his own agenda without necessarily having to kowtow to the Freedom Caucus. But all in all, it would be a very different Washington from what we see now, where... Democrats have largely had to spend their time negotiating among themselves, they would suddenly have to spend a lot of time negotiating with Republicans. And we've seen over the last 10 years how fruitless
1: those endeavors can be. All right, Idris, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. That's all for this special Saturday episode of The Intelligence. To hear more about the elections and American politics more broadly, tune into our sister podcast, Checks and Balance. On Thursday, November 10th, subscribers can join the Checks and Balance team for a live Q&A about the midterm results. Sign up now at economist.com slash Checks event. Our series continues next week. On Election Day, we'll examine the pressures and threats faced by election administrators and ask how secure America's electoral processes really are. And of course, on Wednesday, we'll bring you all the results. This series editor is Marguerite Howell, the producer is Stevie Hertz, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. We'll see you back here on Monday.
6: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business,